0: Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. I am your host, Daniel Gundlach, and I am thrilled to share with you my views derived from a lifetime of listening on the opera and classical singers about whom I am most passionate. I hope that when you hear these voices, you might echo me in saying, God, I love her, or God, I love him. Now, without any further ado, I bring you today's episode. Before we jump right in, I want to say two things to you very quickly. One, again, is to remind you about the dedicated website, countermelodypodcast.com. That's countermelodypodcast, one word, dot com. I've been assiduous about putting together show notes for each episode. I promise you that if you visit there, you will find all kinds of interesting ancillary material that I'm sure you'll find fascinating. Also, what you will find on that page is a link to the Patreon page that I have created for those who are interested in being weekly sponsors of the podcast at whatever amount you care to donate per week. I would also ask that you subscribe to Counter Melody on your favorite podcast platform, that you rate the podcast, and that you pass the word on to others who might be interested in the topics we cover in the podcast. Thank you so much. Yes, my dears, that is correct. October 11th, Friday, was my birthday. Today is actually the Monday before, but tomorrow I'm headed out to Naples and Capri for my birthday. So I'm recording this all very much at the last minute because let me explain what happened. I thought that I was going to do an episode called "Dance Dansplaining where I would tell a little bit about my life and my fascinating adventures, but somewhere along the line, in trying to put that all together, I found myself getting enormously upset and depressed. When contemplating my life. Now who wants to be depressed the week before their birthday? I spent days and days agonizing over this. Yesterday I had a little uh, chat on Messenger with my dear friend Patty in Chicago. And I was telling her about the problems that I was having in putting this together. And she said... Why don't you just talk about singers that you love? That's what this podcast is about. And I said, but I've already recorded all of the the narrative. I'm ready to go. I just had to plug in the songs, but I'm getting all so upset about it. And I'm feeling like such a failure. And she said, you know, sometimes we assess success in a way that's really not very accurate. Anyway, I woke up at four in the morning today and I thought to myself, you know what? Patty's right. I want to talk about something that I love, so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the first of several episodes of what I'm going to call... Needle Drop. And what is Needle Drop, you ask? Well, Needle Drop is this Needle Drop will feature recordings that I have dubbed myself from LP. Most of these recordings are either unavailable on CD or had very, very limited availability. This will give me the perfect excuse to present some of my favorite singers in no particular order just because I love them. And what better reason than there's some of my favorite recordings? some of my favorite singers. So that is exactly what I'm going to do. While we are somewhat on the subject of birthdays and favorite singers, I would like to pay tribute to probably my favorite baritone, Gérard Souzet, who last year celebrated his 100th birthday. Now, was his birthday recognized by anyone in the music business? Not particularly. There are other baritones who are preparing for 100th birthdays, and we're already being geared up for this. We got no special Suze box, we got no special acknowledgement, and it really upset me. If I were running the world, I certainly would have given Gerard a proper tribute. So we will hear a couple things of Suzé today, and I'm going to begin with an LP that I picked up just on the corner at a flea market in front of the Maheineke Marktplatz. It is something that is actually relatively easily available on CD, but I love the idea of it anyway. And so here is Gerard Suzé singing Die Taubenpost by my favorite composer, Franz Schubert. The last song of the Schwanengesang Assembly, done posthumously by his publisher. Dalton Baldwin is the pianist.
1: Ich habe eine Brieftau in meinem Sold, die ist gar ergeben, und ich treue. Sieh ihm, mir nä, das Ziel zu. Und fliegt auch nie
2: vorbei.
1: Ich sende sie viel tausendmal auf Kundschaft täglich hinaus, vorbei an manchem lieben Ort, bis zu der liebsten Haus, bis zu der liebsten Haus. Zum Fenster heimlich hinein, belauscht ihren Blick und schritt. Gibt meine Grüße scherzend ab und nimmt die ihre nicht. Kein Briefchen brauch ich zu schreiben mehr, die Tränen selbst gehe ich hin. Und sie verträgt sie sicher nicht, gar eifrig sie.
0: Eifrig dient
1: sie mir Bei Tag, bei Nacht, im Wachen, im Traum Ihr gilt das alles gleich Wenn sie nur wandern, wandern kann Dann ist sie überall braucht nicht lohnt die Taube ist so mir traurig die Taube ist so mir traurig drum hege ich sie auf so und reue an der Brust der Sicher des schönsten Gesichts sie haßt die Seele. die Segel Boot in Treuen Sins, die Boot in Treuen Sins, drum heg ich sie auf so treu an der Brust, der sichert das schönsten Gedicht.
0: The Swedish soprano Elisabeth Söderström is one of my most cherished singers of all time. I first encountered her as an enthusiastic and excited ten-year-old, checking out his first record, all by his own, from the Janesville Public Library. When one's parent would sign for one, one could, at the age of ten, check out one's own records without needing parental dispensation. And this was my very first choice. Pierre Boulez's recording of Peleas et Mélisande with George Shirley as Peleas and Elisabeth Söderström as Mélisande. I had been looking at this one for months and I was just so eager to hear it. As you know, Melisande's first lines in the opera are Ne me touchez pas, ne me touchez pas. Don't touch me, don't touch me. However, Elisabeth Söderström was very much not that kind of singer. She was a singer who sang with such passion and who drew you in and pulled you in and demanded that you pay attention to the music. We are going to hear Söderström in a rare Recording from Swedish EMI from nineteen seventy-two. It is a fascinating recording that presents her at her absolute best. She is accompanied by the Symfonie Orchestan Norkoping, conducted by Ulf Björlen, in a piece called the Neapolitan Morning Song, arranged by the Swedish musicologist, cellist, and conductor Claude Genete. I don't know anything about this song. It does reference Naples, so that's appropriate. Wait until you hear her singing here, it's absolutely extraordinary. If you didn't like that, I'm not sure we can be friends. (laughs) No, we can be friends, but I do hope that you enjoyed that as much as I did. I find her so extraordinary. There's a fragility in the voice that's undeniable, but the timbre itself, it's instantly recognizable, and she often sang roles that were... Actually much larger than one might have thought she could sustain with her relatively fragile voice. Things like Emilia Marti in Macropolis Affair and uh, Leonore in Fidelio even. But uh, she has such strength of character and she really moves me very deeply. I guess it's also appropriate that that is a song of mourning because, of course, the music world has been in great mourning lately over the death of Jesse Norman. I must say, as far as Jesse Norman is concerned, I was much more of an admirer than a fan, if that makes any sense. I appreciate so many things about her. I was never particularly swept away by her singing, but there were so many other things about her. And reading people's tributes to her, how she was a mentor and an inspiration to so many people, and how she took her position as an artist so seriously, these are all things that I find so extraordinary about her. I'm actually pleased to be able to present a special guest who is going to speak to a very particular aspect of Jesse Norn's art. Not everyone is lucky enough to have a theater expert as their roommate. I, however, am blessed in so many ways because the marvelous David Saverin, theater scholar par excellence, is my roommate, and dear, dear friend. We were speaking just this past week about the legacy of Jesse Norman, and he had some very interesting things to say, and I asked him if he would be willing to go on mic and speak about these observations that he made about Jesse Norman. So please, David, what do you have to tell us?
3: I think that one very important aspect of Jesse Norman's artistry that has not been commented on is her work with the director, Robert Wilson, and... And that, I think, probably started in the late 1970s, certainly from the early 1980s until the early 2000s, was working with him. And in those early years, the first 15, 20 years, Wilson was not a mainstream figure. He was having a really hard time getting his work produced. And having Jesse Norman on board was an incredible achievement. I know their first collaboration was Great Day in the Morning from 1982, a Spirituals performance staging, and it had been scheduled for BAM, and... It had played, I guess it had a brief run in Paris before that. And then there was announced in the New York Times that the BAM run was canceled. And that happened quite a bit to Wilson in those years.
0: What you had remarked to me was that the cancellation was because they weren't quite prepared to take it on the road or something like this. I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah, they said it wasn't ready. But this was a question that I had had earlier for David. It surprised me that Robert Wilson, who had really made his mark, one of his big first pieces was Einstein on the Beach, yes? Yeah, his first
3: well, sort of hit.
0: Yes, that was that was sort of a hit. And that's I would have, would have assumed the that map. the doors would have opened to him as a result of that. No, because said, his work not. was
3: so expensive to do and elaborate. And no American producers were willing to step up to the plate with that kind of money. I mean, that's basically why he moved to Europe starting after Einstein and the Beach. And he had a very hard time of making a go of it. You also have to remember that when Jesse Norman was working with him. This is when the kind of theater that he was doing was being so often derided in the United States as Eurotrash. Oh that was his was the
0: original Eurotrash. Well well, maybe not the original but certainly an exemplar of that.
3: Yes I just have such respect and admiration for her for having really made that commitment that she worked with him on that. She then appeared in the Civil Wars in Paris in the mid-1980s. And this was, I, I think, the next year, one of the installments of Civil Wars. The Jury, for the Pulitzer Prize in drama unanimously nominated it for the Pulitzer Prize and the board of the Pulitzer Committee refused. So we have to remember that Wilson in those years was a controversial figure. Yes, and indeed. I think that her support for his work was an incredible achievement.
0: Yes, and you had also remarked that she also did a production of a traditional opera that would have been books Assessed, assessed. yes. But also you had found something that Robert Wilson had spoken about. Maybe you could just tell us about that as we close out this little segment. It's quite remarkable. It was in the
3: L.A. Times obituary for Norman. The writer is talking about having spoken to Robert Wilson, who remembered in September 2001 that she was scheduled to do a performance of Winterreise in Paris that Wilson had Put together, in other words, a staged,
0: a st- a staged incident, partially
3: staged. Okay, yeah. when September 11th happened, she told him that she had been up all night uh, weeping and she felt that it was impossible for her to sing that next night. And he said, Yes, that's why you have to sing tonight. And she agreed. And he said that at some point in the song cycle she broke down during one of the songs and had to stop singing and he said that for 10 minutes she stood there and cried and the audience cried along with her and that one of the things that was so remarkable about her he said was her silence
0: and the power that she had it's hard to imagine many other singers or artists who could get away with right. being able to stand still and weep yes, for that long. exactly, And as opposed to leaving the stage. Yes, indeed. So that it became a communal shared right. grief. Exactly. That's what's so extraordinary. I was going to only play one short snippet from Great Day in the Morning, but in listening to it, I realized it is an absolutely extraordinary document. So I'm going to present several different clips from it, which I will explain to you at the end. Thank you, Jesse Norman. The selections we heard from Jesse Norman's performance of Great Day in the Morning included the duet, I Believe I'll Go Back Home, with Laverne Williams as her fellow soprano, a selection called Thought, accompanied by Elizabeth Cooper on the piano, and two solo versions of Crucifixion and Amazing Grace. I believe that these arrangements were done by Willis Patterson. Unfortunately, I do not have the recording here with me in Berlin. Again, it was only released on Philips in France and not for a very long time. It's a rather rare recording, as I said, so I'm particularly pleased to have been able to share it with you. Jesse Norman always acknowledged the amazing contributions of the previous generations of African-American singers who paved the way for her. I think I would like to round off this podcast episode with examples from several of those singers. The first one I'd like to present to you is Dorothy Maynor singing a beautifully unstylistic version of O oh Sleep, Why Dost Thou Leave Me from Handel's Semele accompanied by by Serge Kusevitsky and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Because of the blatantly racist situation in the United States in the late 1930s and 40s, Dorothy Maynor was unable to make a career singing staged opera. However, She was a distinguished concert artist and also had the distinction of being the first African-American singer to perform at a presidential inauguration. In fact, she performed at two different ones in 1949, at Harry S. Truman's inaugural, and in 1953 for Dwight D. Eisenhower's. Like Jessie Norman, she had a great dedication to arts education and in 1964 founded the Harlem School of the Arts. Another singer who followed directly after Dorothy Maynor, who did make a career in opera, as well as on the concert platform, was sublime Camilla Williams. Camilla Williams was also the voice teacher of my dear friend Janet Williams, who is featured in several upcoming episodes of Counter Melody as my interview guest Talking about her teacher and many, many, many other things. So I hope that you'll tune in there. Now, I would like to offer you a recording of Camilla singing the Charles Cochelin song, Si tu le veux, accompanied by Borislav Bazala. Si
2: Mithrone, it's of
0: There are two magnificent African-American artists from the 60s, 70s and 80s that I really must feature as well. One of them is Martina Arroyo who recorded a beautiful album of spirituals for Angel Records. One of the things that I particularly love about this recording is that it features the choirs of the Harlem School of the Arts and St. James Presbyterian Church, New York City, both led by Dorothy Mayner. So it's wonderful to have that link with the past on this beautiful 1974 recording. I'm going to offer one selection. It's Let Us Break Bread Together with Martina Arroyo, accompanied by the full choirs, conducted by Dorothy Maynard. person I absolutely positively have to share with you is Shirley Verrett, one of my most treasured and prized singers. I find her sublime in nearly everything she does. And this is a very early recording she made of gospel songs, probably from, I don't know, 1963, 1964, perhaps, on the cap Label. I'm going to play a portion for you of her recording of His Eyes on the Sparrow, accompanied on the piano by Peter Dallas. One of the things that moved me so much was reading this past week about all of the people who found their way to music, opera, singing through Jesse Norman. For me, that person was Leontine Price. I someday will tell you the whole story of it. I started to tell it on the dance-blaming episode, and it was indeed a formative moment for me when I first heard that voice singing the role of Aida, in fact. Now, most of Leontine's recordings are very readily available but I am thrilled to be able to offer you one that has simply never been reissued. She recorded almost entirely for the RCA Victor label. However, in 1979, she recorded an album for the Angel Records label, of all things, of Schubert and Strauss Lieder accompanied by her regular pianist David Garvey and I bought myself a copy of it and I still have it and she's in absolutely glorious voice here Hey there it's Dan I'm just jumping in here I'm out on the porch on our, in our beautiful Airbnb in Naples it's an absolutely incredible view I'll put a picture in the show notes. Another incentive for you to visit there. Listen, I just needed to say something about the performance of Leontine that I was going to drop in. Uh, at the very end. I was thinking about doing a Richard Strauss's Cecilia because she has a glorious high B at the end, it's marvellous, but there are a few too many uh, leontine-isms in that performance. It just (laughs) left me feeling a little queasy. So, actually, (laughs) what I decided instead was to round off the program today with a little bit more Schubert, uh, just as we started with Suzé singing die Taubenpost. so we will conclude with Leontine singing Die Allmacht from that album that I was describing to you. So enjoy, and uh, happy birthday to me. Bye! Special thank you today to David Savran for being my guest and for speaking so eloquently about Jesse Norman's collaborations with Robert Wilson. Thank you also to Alan Seagal, as always, for providing the beautiful underscoring for the podcast, and to Steve Robinson for his invaluable insights and assistance in getting this project off the ground.